Welcome to the Spotlight Report, part of Erie Insights, a resource dedicated to discussions regarding optics and science. I'm your host, Logan Graves, at the University of Arizona. Our website is arieinsights.com, where you can find this episode and comment or subscribe. Additionally, you can find our other podcast series, as well as articles and other resources. Our email address is mail at arieinsights.com. We would love to hear from you. We are here this week with David Vega, who is the senior optical designer in uh, Biomedical Lab, um, and we're going to learn a little bit about optics as its application to the biomedical field, which is a very deep and rich field and something we haven't explored too much before. Um, so without further ado, David, can you uh, kind of just give us a quick introduction on broadly what you're doing in optics right now? So mainly my main work is to design medical endoscopes um, that help detect different diseases. Lately my work has been focusing on ovarian cancer and fallopian tube cancer. So we do endoscopes that are very, very, very tiny, uh, up to three orders of magnitude of current uh, technologies in the hospital. Um, on top of that, we do microscopy with them, so we are trying to detect cancer at, at an earlier stage. Uh, my job is basically to follow the design from my design all the way to trials in the Banner Hospital here at Arizona. And that's basically my daily job. Right. Um, so how did you get into the field of, uh, not only optical design, but especially optics as it applies to medicine? Very good question. It is, uh, I guess it's a long story that I'm going to try to do short, uh, <laughs> because I don't think people want to hear me for two hours. Uh, so one is when I was in my undergrad, I was totally going to go for computer science. Totally different, right? Um, but the way that college, university transfer works in California is actually really bad. What I noticed is that I had to start all over again. And I said like, okay, if I need to start all over again, I'm gonna start something different. Because at that point, I had had so many classes in computer science that I could probably go and teach them. Right, so I said, okay, I'm gonna start something completely new. So I started studying physics and math. I got in love with physics in general. Um, I enjoy so much doing all my physics homework. I, I knew it was like painful, but at the same time, it was very um, fulfilling to see myself solving these really hard problems that professors are always trying at you. Um, they're not trying to be mean, they're actually trying to make you learn something. And the last two years in California State Polytechnic University, Cal Poly for short, um, 
I got off an offer for to work in one of the research labs there. Now, this school is not a research school like University of Arizona. It's more like a student-based uh, learning school. So they don't focus much in research. There is some research, but for example, the physics department only had three labs from all like 17 professors. So they, do, they are not required to do research. So this professor was doing research uh, mainly in optics. He graduated from Caltech and he did a postdoc somewhere in, also in the LA area. So he was working in these sensors that are basically fibers that you stretch, then you functionalize those and you can detect tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of DNA. Um, so what they were trying to do is detect MRSA DNA in blood. So when somebody gets infected, it usually takes weeks to get these results. This sensor had the potential to give you results within seconds. So it was a very cool research, but he asked me to work in another one that he was starting, and that was a, a computational microscope. Basically, what we were doing is something that is in the market now. It's weird that we were developing it back then between several schools like Berkeley, uh, California State Polytechnic University, and I think MIT. And it was basically to use a cell phone to capture an image and do some image analysis with the cell phone itself. So that's a way... Uh, they call it computational microscope. Technically, it was very simple. Attach one or two lenses to the camera, get an image with high uh, magnification, and then do something with the image in the software of the cell phone. Um, so I went crazy on that project, and I actually applied super resolution on a cell phone, which was very interesting. People around uh, we had to present this several times in different areas but i remember one in a specific we went and present this to berkeley where there is other team trying to work on this and they were like baffled that i was doing super resolution on a cell phone because they could not do super resolution on their computers right and uh and can you can you just explain for the audience what super resolution is well, super resolution in this case is basically you take a picture that has certain number of pixels, right? Let's say just for easy numbers, 10 by 10. And when you take these pictures of 10 by 10, you can only resolve certain things that you can fit on these pixels. But computationally, you can make some assumptions. And by knowing your samples, you kind of educate the computer on how to make these 10 by 10 image for a 25 by 25 image and um, you increase your resolution basically two and a times two times and a half more and if you are correct on your code you can actually get real features um, there are some techniques to get real features as well like moving the camera a little bit in every picture and then you get 20 pictures of the same scene and then the computer takes charge and basically computes a 25 by 25 image 
uh, with all your 10 images and it makes uh, the picture, let's say, more clear to see. Yeah. It's, it's one of the one of the too many uh, super resolution techniques that there exists. There are so many. Uh, the one I just talked about is just one of them. Mm -hmm. So, and and super resolution, uh, as you stated, it's commonly applied to microscopy, but with just traditional computers. Um, and for people who aren't in the medical field, the benefits are enormous. Like you're saying, you you. Like the, like the name entails, you get super resolution, you can pick up features that previously we couldn't see and that really give us a lot deeper insights into, um, into the biology or whatever we're looking at. But um, So you developed this and you did it on a cell phone. Yes, we did it on a cell phone. Uh, this project I presented so much that a friend actually learned the presentation or what I said in the presentation, right? <laughs> and he could actually give my presentation and he's a biologist, nothing regarding to, to physics. But uh, we were in this research group together and he was like, I have seen your presentation so many times that I can actually give it. And I was like, okay, I, I dare you to do it. He actually stepped up put my slides on the in the projector and start giving my presentation. <laughs> Five minutes later, I was like, okay, enough, you have proof to me that you can actually give my presentation. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, it was a nice project and it was very well represented. So that's why I guess my friend got to see my presentation too many times. Um, but I mean, it never. I never continue on that project. As far as I know, there are other students there and now you can just go to Amazon and purchase these kind of lenses. Um, they are readily available and cheap from China. And now the software is a different issue. But, uh, you know, people can access these kind of technologies that we were developing, I don't know, seven years ago. And they're, they're very cheap, impressively cheap. I spent way too much in lenses now <laughs> that I think. Right. Well, and that's, I think that that's like a huge recent shift in the optics market is that, like you're saying, you can get, you can get pretty good lenses from China for incredibly cheap, much less, you know, in the U.S. or other manufacturers. But as you said, I think that the, the algorithm and the software is where a lot of the magic happens, particularly for, for this type of application. So Correct. Um, so after that, where did you end up? So after going through these... Um, undergrad research, I actually had a small business in LA area, nothing to do with, with optics. We used to do IT services for small companies. Um, we were the owners of this company and it was really nice to be there. Uh, so I took a break from school for some time. I focused on my, on my business. Uh, and one day I just said like, okay, it's time to go and learn more, right? And I decided that my thing was optics. And my professor from my undergrad institution, Cal Poly, he was like, you know what? There is this very cool summer school in the University of Arizona, and it's made by the Optical uh, Science College. Um, I'm going to tell them to invite you. So I was invited, uh, came here got to see so many labs and I got to, I didn't know anything about Dr. Barton, my current mentor. And I got to meet her and I was trying to visit all the labs possible. 
and her lab is basically on the other, on the other side of the campus, right? Um, Optical Sciences is on the south, uh, Bio5 is basically about seven blocks north from it. And I remember it was raining so bad, <laughs> and I was like, ah, I don't know. So Dr. Rodden got this group, like five, six students, and she said like, okay, um, actually we were five, including her. And she said like, okay, my car is right outside here. So let's drive to the, to the lab over there and I'll show you what I do. And I remember she parked in front of the building with this really nice BMW. And I'm like, oh crap, my shoes are full of mud. And I'm just going <laughs> to get into my possible future advisor with my uh, shoes full of mud. Right? So I didn't want to touch anything inside the car. Like I felt... Uh, I don't know, out of place, because obviously it was a very nice car and we were all dripping in water, right? After a while, I was like, okay, everybody's dripping in water, so I shouldn't feel that bad. But anyway, that's what I was thinking. So we came here um, to her lab and she showed me the very first prototype of an endoscope that is called the falloposcope. It goes through the fallopian tube and tries to take imaging of the fallopian tube and the ovary to detect cancer. And this thing is 800 microns in diameter, the whole endoscope. So that meant that the camera itself is 300 microns to allow for other needed systems in the endoscope. So it baffled my mind, right? Like, how can we have at 300 microns, a small camera, because you're doing a small camera there, in there. And she showed me the design. Obviously, it's not the same to see it in the computer as a drawing than to actually try to see it in the endoscope because it's mostly impossible to see it unless you have a microscope. And, uh, you know, that was like the, the moment that I said, I want to do that. It looks so cool. I want to do a small optics. Uh, it looks like it's challenging and I like to challenge myself. I didn't really know what I was doing with myself. Um, probably should regret that that <laughs> time, right? But <laughs> I mean, it's been fun. It's, it's super challenging. But, you know, seeing this really small device uh, that can navigate the human body and making no damage because this thing was designed to enter from, you know, current openings uh, of the woman and go and take images of the ovary and fallopian tube without any damage, it, probably in a uh, physician office without an operation room. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was like, oh, this thing can make huge impact in lives and it looks super cool. Right. I think that's one of the, I think that that's, for me anyways, um, some of my past research was in biomedical. And those are the two sides of it that are really interesting is that the, the impact is tangible and Correct. really rewarding, at least to, to me. Um, like you're saying, you can help to image cancer or cure cancer or whatever the case may be for the MRSA. You can detect something that really has an impact on people's lives. And then the other side of it is that it's really hard. <laughs> it is tremendously hard. Right. So if you, if you had experience in that, you know exactly what I'm talking about because biology is biology. It, it, it doesn't follow rules. Right, right. 
Absolutely. And the physics gets weird when it yeah. gets small. And as I'm sure that we'll talk about. But um, so before we get there, um, your current work you hinted at is also dealing with endoscopes, but additionally microscopy. Um, before we move ahead, can you just describe why, why would we want, for the, for the people that aren't familiar with it, why would we want to use endoscopes? Why would we want to use um, an endoscope to image the fallopian tube or the ovaries? It's so hard to do. Why do it? Um, very good question. I think a lot of people don't realize that ovarian cancer is one of the few cancers that have no diagnostic tool whatsoever. So my mentor got really passionate about this and she was like, I'm going to provide something that is going to be hopefully the first or second or third, whoever, whatever that is, but uh, a device that helps to, to image this cancer. Um, so yes, it's difficult. Uh, my mentor has been doing this for, I think, 15 years. And if you think about it, the device is not still in the market. So there is not, there's still nothing available. We have some trials of these endoscopes and banners, so we're getting closer to it, but it takes time, right? People also don't realize sometimes that it takes years and years in development. Uh, first, we need to study cancer itself, in the ovary specifically, because every cancer in different organs manifests differently. So my mentor had to do a lot of studies on cancer itself. Nothing regarding optics, all regarding biology and medicine. Then they realized that many cancers will start in the fallopian tube, then move to the ovary, and sometimes move back to the fallopian tube, and then metastasize to all the body. So. That's when my uh, mentor, uh, she's from, she has uh, her PhD in ECE, so she was trying to figure out a way to, to do all this with, you know, her engineering background. So at some point she got involved in optics because basically it's one of the enabling techniques of the world. And we are trying now to do this. She has, or several teams now in the world, have uh, several theories on how this happened or how this cancer evolved. So we're trying to image uh, different, how can I say this, uh, different landmarks of the cancer with these endoscopes to try to detect the cancer early on, uh, not to have to wait for the woman to actually be diagnosed with cancer. Uh, but if we can catch it, let's say, in a pre-cancer stage, um, and the woman can avoid a lot of suffering and this is actually a lot of suffering um, if that is not the case if we detect it in stage one or stage two most of the women can live a normal life stage three and four are the ones that are giving problems and as i said there are no tools to diagnose this usually when they get diagnosed they're stage four or almost uh, metastasize because at that point it's when they start having actually some medical issues mm -hmm. and before that they feel nothing and I think I think a analogy that a number of people can relate to is um, 
or that seems analogous to me is uh, something like colon cancer, where we have a we have a method where you can go in, you the procedure might not be terribly fun, but you can get uh, screening earlier and catch cancer in the polyp stage and get it removed and avoid having colon cancer. Correct. Um, and the difference, of course, being that the fallopian tubes and all of this is, like you said, on an enormously smaller scale. So it really uh, adds to the challenges, but the but the the rewards are um, enormous, right? To Correct. early diagnosis of uh, fallopian or ovarian cancer is extremely important. So, um, so can you talk about uh, kind of how you integrate it into this process and and what your role is for the science being done? Um, well, first of all, coming from a physics background, uh, in the lab, I'm probably the one that understand the most about the physical process with light. So usually if I see that something is going to break the laws of physics, I'm the one pointing that out. And physics always win. You know, there is no way anybody can ruin that break those laws. So my job is to early identify these problems in every single instrument that we're working on. There are two instruments that we're working on right now. And uh, obviously, even my design doesn't come free of those things. You realize things as you go. You make the design and you think it's going to work and obviously the computer is telling you that it's going to work but the computer doesn't account for so many other variables so as you go you learn more things and then you refine your design so my job is basically uh well the, the design phase has passed right i already we already designed those things so we're doing the engineering right now and right now, as you know, every engineering barrier that we get, like, oh, how are we going to build this? Because some of the things that we design, there are no tools for that. So we're scratching our heads for two or three days, just thinking, how are we going to do this? How are we going to produce these little fibers, these little optics, these little endoscopes at the end? Um, and most of the time, it's by hand. You know, we get some help uh, from tools, but we have to use a lot of ingenuity and a lot of imagination. Mostly imagination, I'm going to say, because some of the ideas that have come up are like, I even think they're crazy. Then I come with my uh, colleagues and, hey, guys, I thought about this thing. Or some, sometimes they come to me, right, with the same kind of crazy ideas. And most of the time we say, okay, let's try Let's see, we never, we never know. And yes, we have failed so many times, but at the end, uh, hopefully, you always find the solution. So I design, identify, try to break barriers so these endoscopes hopefully make it to Banner uh, by next year. So if, if that happens, we're going to have the first successful human trials in a possible tool to diagnose ovarian cancer. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not just my job, it's, it's that 20 people afford to get these endoscopes to Banner. Right, a long, uh, a long project overall. Yes. Uh, and the, I'm talking just the 20 people in my project. I think 
if we integrate all the people that have been in this lab, it's just, I don't know how many. <laughs> right, right. It probably is in the hundreds. Right. And Banner being the, uh, for our listeners, the local um, hospital right attached to our, to our uh, research facility. Correct. Um, so can you broadly kind of lay out what does an endoscope look like? What are the key components um, for our listeners? Um, there are different ones. For example, the one you mentioned for colon cancer usually is, uh, we call it distal and proximal size, right? The proximal side is what the physician is holding, so the handle of the endoscope. Here, the physician usually have some controls for the, for the endoscope. Most endoscopes are attached nowadays to a computer where they can perform additional things. So if the physician says, take a picture, the nurse in the back controlling the computer takes a picture or the technician or whoever is controlling that thing. Uh, so usually an endoscope is going to have, I'm going to say three main parts, the insertion tool, which is usually what goes inside the patient, the handle with the, what we call the proximal communication. So it's basically all the wires going from the handle to the rack. And the rack containing the computer, power supply, uh, light sources, anything that we need for this endoscope um, contains the other parts. So it's the, the insertion tool, the handling tool, and basically the computer with light and all the other stuff that you need. Um, as I said, there are too many different endoscopes. and. All of them are different. All of them have different requirements. Uh, some of them are stiff, that meaning that they're not flexible. And once they are in the, inside the body, they need to be very careful. Uh, some of them are flexible, but they limit the capability for the physicians. So it depends on the on what they're trying to detect or see the endoscope they use. Mm-hmm. And it certainly depends on the endoscope, but. Part of this means that at the uh, at the end of the endoscope, light is being emitted so that you can illuminate whatever you're trying to look at or care about, and then that light uh, interacts with the body in some way. Either it's absorbed and fluoresced, or it scatters, etc. And then the the light coming from the body is then captured by optics at the end of the endoscope and transferred down the fiber Correct. back to the computer. Yes. The detector. Usually, the detectors in the computer. Does something with it, <laughs> right? Right, right. Yeah, makes it makes it into something yeah, useful. Yeah, I do something because you know if we start describing all the techniques, probably yeah, it'll be, yeah. take until tomorrow. Um, <laughs> probably more. Yeah. Uh, so, can you talk about some of the unique challenges for the optics at the scale of the um, endoscope that you're designing or working with? Um, as I said, we have two endoscopes. One is huge, one and a half millimeters diameter. You know, we call that huge because we have around our endoscope that, that uh, is less than one millimeter diameter. Uh, I think in the optics regime, the most problematic thing is to clean these optics. If they get dirty by any chance, uh, it's really hard to clean them. You know, if, do you want to use lens paper? Well, maybe the lens paper is, you're gonna lose your lens somewhere in it, uh, especially when we're talking lenses in 300 microns. 
where a piece of dust sometimes is bigger than this thing. Um, so we have to be very careful with our lenses. We either get a pristine lens from manufacturing all the way to the endoscope with being very careful, or uh, we invent techniques designed to clean every endoscope with its own needs. Uh, so I think this is where I have spent a lot of my work, like, okay, we're going to put the endoscope in, but what if we get a piece of dust in it? How are we going to clean this? Because you're not going to just trash a $20,000 endoscope because you're not able to clean it. Um, I think it's a major problem. Uh, for the, especially for the optician doing the alignment. The other major problem is that no optomechanicals exist at these at these sizes. If you call name any company, you know you can insert. If you call blank and ask for one and a half millimeters optomechanical uh, things to hold lenses, they're probably gonna tell you like you're nuts or that you have to go into a local shop to actually do it yourself. Uh, so that's another major constraint that we have. We have to think on how to make the optics, that there are not only optics, but many of the time, the same optic is its own optomechanical holder. So they act both as lenses and as mechanical components. Um, as, I, as we've been talking about, every endoscope is different, and that's a major issue because you cannot use the techniques that you develop for one for the other one. Right. Uh, you always have to be in this creative state and change things to make it work. And when you, you stated earlier that um, a lot of the time people don't manufacture these, they aren't going to manufacture a 300 micron lens. Um, or at least they probably didn't when you first asked for it. So how do you go about actually getting this um, from from an idea into something real? Well, maybe many of the ideas we presented at the beginning were physically not possible or outside of any manufacturing technique ever um, or current manufacturing technique. I'm sure one day we're gonna have that capability. So we need to be very careful on this. Uh, we need to assess the risk and what are we gonna propose and design uh, and actually make it real, right? So one thing that we do often is we have identified many manufacturers that have very good capabilities. And very often we go to their list of capabilities and we say, okay, from these capabilities, we need all these, but this one is not quite yet. Uh, so what we do is we push that capability with some of the manufacturers. It takes a lot of talking and dealing with them and convincing them that they can do it, even though we know nothing about the process. Uh, and that's where you have to be careful. Your design has not to push too many boundaries. If that is pushing more than three, four boundaries, maybe you're you're making a crazy design. Um, 
it's always good to have a senior person to check your designs because they can identify these kind of things easily by experience. There is no book is gonna, that is going to teach you this. And that's probably a problem. But I think that for me, the, the, the good role of Tom is more than three capabilities being pushed. No. Set back your, your mind and think in another solution mm-hmm. that is going to have, that is going to use most of the current possible things that are out there. Now, the 300 microns lenses, uh, we push hard on that one. It's, it's a lens that not everybody can do it. Um, there, we only find, we did find only one manufacturer in the entire world that was like, I can try. It wasn't even like, I will do it. It was like, I can try, right? And that's what we want to hear. When they say, I can try, we're basically, we become from researchers to cheerleaders because we have to be like, no, okay, let's solve this problem. Okay, you couldn't do it this way. What about, have you thought about this? Have you, what about going this way or that way? Or, and that is also a skill that we gain because we know, sometimes we know nothing about the process, but we are trying to help these people to push their boundaries. Uh, the last endoscope, one of the companies doing some of the dichroids got two patents out of it. And they were never thinking about this, right? They were like, oh yeah, you can, we can use, push this machine to the limit and blah, blah, blah. It didn't work. So they had to create a new method to build these dichroids with patterns that we needed. Right. And, and like you're saying earlier, there's, um, on the manufacturing side, there's certainly like physical limits. There are some things where it's just no matter how hard you push, it's not going to happen. Correct. But I'm sure that also on the biology side, there are some limits. You can't, you, there's a limit to how big the lens can be, right? Correct. For this thing to work at all. Um, are there any inherent um, optical considerations that you look at that you think are pretty unique to this application? Um uh, one is the size of the optics. You just mentioned that one. Um, we're really constrained on that. We sometimes we want to have a three a thirty millimeter optic, right? Because that will facilitate humongously your work. But that is one of the constraints that we have in this field. Now, the other constraint, which is being um, it's been changing in, in these years. FDA is finally comprehending this is important. It's, it's the use of high power lasers in, in the medical field. Uh, they are not gonna, unless they're designed for that purpose, they're not gonna burn the tissue or things like that. And finally, FDA is accepting this. So that is another challenge that we have, and it's a special problem for the biomedical community. We have to be very careful how much power we actually deliver to the body. Uh, as you say, biology is, is one of our variables, and you never know what you're going to encounter when you get into the body. So you have to be prepared. You have to, to design your optics 
to be prepared for these scenarios. If something is going to break inside the body, what are the optics going to do? Are they biocompatible so the, the person, you know, doesn't have any physical damage? Mm -hmm. Most of the time we try to do all that. Uh, sometimes it's impossible, but most of those things are proof of concept and they never reach the, the medical usage. Right. So whenever we are actually putting an endoscopy that person, everything has to be biocompatible, which limits the amount of materials that you can actually use. Uh, even the glue has to be biocompatible. Uh, fiber is biocompatible. Everything biocompatible. So it's, and it's not only like any biocompatible, human biocompatible, because unfortunately we, uh, you know, try, I'm saying unfortunately because uh, animals get tested sometimes with things that are not biocompatible, which I don't think is fair, but uh, it's the way it is. And humans are never tested with things that are not biocompatible. Right. Unless the researcher decides to do it on himself. Right. It's, it's right. the only option if you want to do that. Right, because you have to pass the, uh, for people not in the biomedical or medical community, you have to pass the SPAR review board. Correct. Um, and they certainly won't give you the go-ahead to do something that's like going to potentially endanger a patient. Correct. Um, I think that's another important consideration, too, that you brought up that um, a lot of times you'll hear that something works uh, uh, fantastic. They tested it in a rat model. Um, but that actually doesn't translate to, to a human model, um, which adds a lot of complications because you guys have to go through the process of getting not only passed a review board, but also um, getting approval from patients. Correct. So um, are you involved in that at all? or um, I'm involved in the procedure, not in the getting uh, basically patients. Right, right. We have... Uh, doctors, physicians that are willing to test our, our tools because they are interesting to obviously pushing the science and make sure we get these really needed tools. So most of the women that have accepted to test these tools are women that are in their second case of cancer or battling cancer for a second time. Obviously, they see the need for these tools. Uh, sometimes some of them in, in the first case of cancer, they are battling. But it's, it's hard to convince customers, right, that, oh, I'm going to put this high-power laser into you and let's see if it works. Right. Um, they probably will say no immediately. But obviously, we explain them what it is. We explain them what, what to expect. And we obviously make a very strong effort to, uh, when you're testing these kind of devices, the physician should not see the results of your device to make sure the customer, in this case, the customer or the, the patient gets the standard of care. The physician will know after uh, that person is discharged uh, what happened with the device. So we avoid any bias made by our testing instrument in that way. Right. So that, that's the way uh, customers get the standard of care 
while helping uh, helping us to develop these tools. Basically, you're going through the same process, and something new will be brought in and used. It won't it won't endanger you, but it won't at all impact that standard procedure. Correct. It's only afterwards that they might get some the Docker in particular, and certainly you guys get greater insight into how it performed. Yeah, especially since you know if they. The gold standard for cancer is, is basically get a sample and stay right, there, right. stain it, and it takes weeks and blah, blah, blah. So that's what we also want to see. Mm-hmm. Not telling everybody, you know, nobody, like maybe we already saw the cancer and maybe we're 90% that is cancer, you know, we, we were so sure that it's, then the sample comes back and they say, it's not cancer. And what if the doctor, based on our data, right, that person probably will be having another kind of care. Right. And this is a, this is probably outside the scope of, the, of today's conversation, but that's a huge problem. Correct. Um, with a variety of other techniques already utilized. Uh, but So you mentioned a couple times uh, a high-powered laser, and it finally occurred to me, we should probably explain why you'd want to. Why would you want to use a high-powered laser? Because you have to convince them. Look, it's okay. Uh, it sounds scary, but it's okay. So why why even bother with that? Well, I just say it sounds scary, but it's not. It's considered high-powered laser for human use. It's not high-powered in reality. Um, there are so many other lasers that are really high-powered that can could steal and things like that. These lasers are called only high power because they can excite certain molecules in the body to provide us with information. So what we do is uh, with this energy, we excite different things in the body, especially like collagen or fluids or other things. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what we use a high power laser for, to get this information out. Uh, we are very careful into making sure that the power in certain tissues doesn't breach the threshold where the tissue becomes damaged. We're usually very far away, 40% threshold away or 50 to 60% threshold away. We really want to make sure that our uh, patients don't get more damage than the one they already have, right? Right. And, uh, if you are a good-minded people, obviously you want to take care of these people that are actually allowing you to test some crazy idea that you had that might one day work. Right, and I can't. So I can't speak for for your technology, but when we were looking at colon cancer, um, <clears throat> we were utilizing a uh, xenon lamp arc lamp source, which Correct. again was considered. You, you know, you tell some people this and. Uh, we actually had, we worked with a patient who was a welder and they were like, absolutely not, you know, you're not bringing that thing around me. Um, and you have to explain to them that with these, with these light sources, we can kind of utilize wavelengths that allow us to look at very specific features in the body. Correct. And they just, for, for people not in the field, they just blow up. They look super bright, super clear relative to everything else. And if that's an important marker or biomarker, that's fantastic because we now have so much more information. Um, we do exactly the same. The only difference is instead of using a lamp, we use uh, other quantum 
sure. techniques right. to create a, a line, a, a specific wavelength, not mm -hmm. a broad. Right, band. right, right. But we basically do the same. We make it, those things to make a bright image and hopefully detect it. But the principle is the same, probably. Right, and and so what does that look like from the physician side at the at the end of the day? Um, if you guys can carry this through patient trials and you get something that's a finished product, what is the hope for the physician to be able to, to see? Um, it's really hard to change a whole community when they're used to see something like histology. Histology is the gold standard and it has been for so many years. There is even research going on into changing the kind of microscopy that we have to look like histology, right? So our images can look red, blue. Histology has usually only purple and red, right? Or pinkish, if you wish. So there is some really interesting research in UCLA uh, that these guys are correlating so they basically get, let's say, an endoscope or another microscope that makes these weird imaging systems. And they also take the exact same tissue and they, they make histology of it. It's the exact same part, right? Or sometimes they even slice the tissue first, go on image with the nonlinear microscope, and then come back and do the histologist to do this thing and then they image the histology slide. Then once they get a good database of it, they can convert every single image without going through the histology part within seconds. So the physician sees exactly the same. The diagnostic is only different. The diagnostic must be faster or must be better than the one we already have. If not, why will be doing this? So. This is the, I think, one, one goal for the biomedical community. Try not to change the current standard, but provide them with better tools, faster tools, more sensitive tools, at which, you know, the idea in the, in the medical community is perfect. I diagnose something, I treat you, or hopefully prevent that illness. Uh, now, we cannot go on just from one night to the next morning, teach them how to read multiphoton microscopy, optical coherence tomography. These other techniques have different uh, principles. But if we show them a transformed optical coherence tomography image to histology, or a transformed multiphoton microscopy image to histology, they already know what they're seeing. So we're trying not to change um, their current knowledge because they are very good at it. They're already very good at it. The only thing we're trying to provide is a better tool where they can sample not only a small piece of tissue, but probably the entire organ, why not? Right, because sometimes that's another problem. Physician miss cancer as a spot because they cannot basically test the entire organ because at that point they already removed the organ. So we want to do optical technologies that are not destructive for the organ, 
that provides a physician with the exact same information that histology without destroying the organs unless it's needed. Uh, what I would that mean is to you know, destroy the cancer if there is any. Right. So at the end of the day, um, effectively the, the hope is the physician now has an extremely small device, a endoscope, that they can use to do early testing of fallopian or ovarian cancer. Correct. Um, and what that means from their side is that they see the exact same thing that they would have seen, something analogous to a histology report. Correct. Uh, and they might see it. They might see it live, or they might see it a few minutes after. But it's certainly faster than having to actually send a tissue sample down to the histology lab, and they get not only the benefit of quicker uh, reporting, but also potentially more accurate uh, and certainly a greater area. Like you're saying, you don't have to pull the whole organ out. Correct. So th that is another thing that, you know, physicians always request. I want a very wide field of view so I can see the entire organ at once and see if there is any cancer. Well, while that is still impossible for with our current techniques or methods, we want to provide a tool where that is technically possible, right? They just need to scan the organ little by little. Uh, in histology, they scan the organ every three centimeters, every five centimeters. They miss a lot of tissue and that's the problem. If we invent a tool that they can scan on top of the, of the surface and detect cancer, they will be grateful, mm -hmm. right? Because it'll be faster, they won't miss the spots hopefully, and that's one of the major benefits of these endoscopes. Now we're talking about ovaries, they're not too big, so that's why the, the endoscopes are perfect suited, suited for these. Uh, also, our endoscopes are translatable to uh, prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer. So if you think about it, we just need to adjust the parameters of the imaging, and we can also detect cancers in other organs. Right, and I, and I have to imagine that um, the listeners are probably more familiar, potentially, with pancreatic cancer. Correct. Um, I think Alex Trebek was diagnosed with it, and this is it. pancreatic cancer for the listeners is, um, I think, the most lethal form of cancer. And typically, the reason, what exactly what you said, you don't know that you have it because there's no easy way to test for it, and you aren't going to test for it until things start going really wrong, at which point it's probably too late to do much. Um, and I don't know if they've changed it, but they used to uh, have to aspirate uh, pancreas cells, which... Uh, which I think is important for our listeners to hear, to get a grasp of why this is important. You take a giant needle and jam it into the pancreas and get cells. And then those go to a lab and they get stained and someone has to sit over them and analyze those stained cells. And it's, it's, it's late, it's painful, and it's certainly not perfect from the histology lab. Um, so there's just so much room for improvement. Uh, which sounds really exciting. Sounds like it's about to. It's it's hopefully very close around the corner. Correct. Um, well, another thing, you know, as you mentioned, they they distract these cells. When the endoscope, uh, they can do this in a physician office. They can get results right there. They do not need to wait two weeks for them. Imagine if they are in prostate uh, or pancreatic cancer. They have the patient completely open 
And one histologist has to be in the room trying to make histology as fast as he can because they try to sample the entire pancreas. And those kind of processes can last days. When uh, I say days, more than two. Imagine the patient being anesthesia for more than two days. Right, right. Uh, so the optical technologies are, that are coming uh, hopefully solve these kind of problems and they can scan probably the pancreas in a matter of minutes, extract whatever tissues needed to be extracted, and next patient. Sure, right. right. Um, so along those same lines, can you comment on other optical technologies that you think might be applicable to the medical field? I, it'll be easier to tell you that I think that non-optical, that none of the optical techniques cannot be used in the medical field. I think everything <laughs> can be used. The problem is, you know, for what are we going to use them, right? Because we already use diffraction. We already use uh, reflectors, the scatterers. Uh, we, the medical community, with the biomedical community, with the optical community, have been really good at exploiting things. They, we like to test everything. If I can do ramen, please, I will do ramen. And we, I mean, not our team, but some other teams have done it. And that's the thing. I don't think there is any optical um, technique that we don't want in the medical field. You know, health is the most important thing probably for many people. And there is one, just to put an example on the table, astronomers have been doing adaptive optics for years. For years. These adaptive optics, up to some time ago, they were exclusive to the telescopes. Now, these adaptive optics are finally getting to the medical field and doctors can be can resolve better, can do better images of, of tissues and things like that with this technique. So a technique from astronomy travel all the way down to get to the hospitals. Uh, I don't believe there is any uh, final product with it, but there are potentials for it. Uh, name it, low energy laser, high energy laser, medium energy lasers, there. Nonlinear optics, I think what we're already exploiting, second harmonics, third harmonics, all those things. So if I go uh, and touch in every single subject of optics that I know, I think I can, I can pinpoint I use in the medical field for that. So optics is a real enabler in the medical field. Uh, is not as used right now, but it's it is getting in there, uh, and it's being recognized as a very powerful tool. So optics in general, I think, is are gonna make a huge impact in the in the health of people, not only diagnosing but preventing as well. Uh, and then the last thing that I, I like to ask our guests is uh, if you have any advice for people considering the field of optics broadly or math and physics, um, yeah, that you'd like to share. Well, I'm not sure if I should invite people to the man of physics. That was uh, <laughs> an actual suffering, uh, very fulfilling suffering, by the way. But uh, I mean, I think 
these fields are are for people that have very good greed, right? Not everybody survives, unfortunately. It's not an easy subject. So what I'm going to say is that if you're going to get into physics, math, any kind of engineering, um, do it and do it well. And if you do it well, you're going to have the probability to do fulfilling things. So I'm applying the physics knowledge now in the medical community. I know some other people that are applying that exact same thing for uh, devices that are making our lives better. Uh, so they are fulfilling at the end. Yes, you suffered through four years. Okay, but I guess the, the best thing I can say is uh, be resilient and make sure if you like it and if you want to apport to the human society, it's worth it. Uh, hard subjects, not everybody likes them, not everybody will do it. Uh, if you have the heart to do it, go ahead, but you know, you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really fun, I'm not going to lie, I mean, I, I say that probably in a pessimistic way, but it's really, really fun, I had so much fun doing it, but you know, looking back, I'm like, yeah, it was hard, it was really hard at some points. But at the end, it was worth it. I'm doing what I do today. I'm realizing that every single bit that I learn is being applied. And that's what is rewarding, right? You didn't lose time when you were thinking like, who is going to use Maxwell equations again in their life? Well, I use them every day. And I probably have thought about that too many times. So, yeah, it's just, just do not give up and be sort of difficult things that can solve amazing problems. Uh, and that's why they're difficult, because the problems that we encounter are big. All right. Well, on that note, thank you for, uh, for uh, taking the time to speak to us this week. Thank you for inviting me. been the spotlight report if you would like to comment or subscribe on today's episode or access more episodes of the spotlight report please visit us at airyinsights.com where you can comment and subscribe and additionally access other resources that we provide such as alternative podcasts and articles etc thank you for listening